Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Proponents of so-called reparative or conversion therapy say it can help people transition away from unwanted homosexuality. Opponents say the therapy is not only harmful, but flawed in its premise. California recently prohibited licensed therapists from using reparative therapy on anyone under the age of 18. And a University of Utah student and three other gay men are suing a New Jersey center under New Jersey's Consumer Fraud Act over conversion therapy. Later in the program, we'll be talking with licensed professional counselor David Matheson, who supports conversion of reparative therapy. And uh, later in the program, the second half, we'll be talking with uh, two gay Mormons, Josh Weed and Mitch Main, about the LDS Church's recent uh, new website and outreach to gay Mormons. But we begin with an opponent of reparative therapy. Lee Beckstead is a licensed psychologist working full-time in private practice affiliated with Aspen Grove Counseling in Salt Lake City. Uh, He served uh, for two years, ending in 2009, on a uh, task force, the American Psychological Association's task force, evaluating research into uh, conversion or reparative therapy. And uh, I spoke with Lee Beckstead yesterday. Reparative therapy is uh, being opposed by a growing list of national psychological associations and the like. From your work on this study, what are the what are the main reasons that you would say uh, why you oppose reparative or conversion therapy? Well, I think just at the basis, it assumes that homosexuality or same-sex attractions is a symptom of some problem of um, either a it, of a mental disorder or an illness or a developmental disorder, and that since if there's this cause, then we can cure it or we can treat it. And all mental, major mental health organizations are quite clear that um, homosexuality is not a symptom of a, of a disease or, or um, a, a problem. That the problems that arrive in um, being lesbian, gay, or bisexual is, like, is caused by something else. So I think just at the basis, it tries to cure something that these mental health organizations say there um, there is no um, problem necessarily. So are, are the, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. And so that's probably like the primary um, knee-jerk reaction to these organizations. But then there are also other reasons why the, um, they um, are either suspect about these these interventions or they're um, opposed to them. Uh, I can have I can list them off to if you want me to. There's um yes. for example the. Um, what we found with our with our um, task force is that the studies that are used to support these these treatments that they um, are flawed significantly, and so much so that we just don't know if the the, the positive self reports that um, are supporting these treatments if they're really reliable. There's a, there are other reasons why people would be reporting positive changes besides the change in their sexual orientation, um, and there are several hypotheses for that. But that's, that's the one thing is that uh, it lacks scientific value to support their efficacy. And then um, it also, um, it, it's, there's a long history, not a long history, since the 70s and 80s and 90s, there's been more research investigating the distress in um, lesbian, gay, bisexual people's lives, finding that out that um, much of it is about minority stress, the stress of living with being a sexual minority. And then the, dealing with the sexual stigma and the prejudice and the, um, the false information out there, that that um, those if you're going to provide um, adequate care care to um, sexual gender minorities, you really do have to provide affirmative interventions. And because these type of therapies really don't um, counter um, like prejudice, they actually tend to reinforce prejudice. So in a sense, that these practices are they represent an incomplete practice. They're missing really um, important elements um, to provide for um, sexual and gender minorities, and they're actually reinforcing the things that are, can be harmful for this population. It's almost like when you work with um, racial minorities, if, if you're not doing something to, um, to uh, assess or counter the racism that the person may be experiencing, you're really not providing um, complete care um, or um, um, awareness of the, the, the context of, of the person's um, concerns. So you say the uh, there are no studies which would back up the uh, efficacy of this. This that's one argument, um, but the, you know there are anecdotal reports, and you're saying there are problems with self-reporting. But uh, some of these people are saying, uh, "Yes, I went through conversion therapy and it worked. I am no longer homosexual." Yeah, that, that's it's two things because they they say, they say they like it for one thing and that it works. 
Um, and what my research was about, and, and others as well, is trying to understand um, why they like it and how they could say that they worked. My, my research was um, qualitative, which means I'm really asking people um, to, to describe what, um, how they changed and how they saw themselves changed. And um, if, if you look, just talk with these individuals, they each have their own um, ways of conceptualizing sexuality, ways of making sense of um, sexual orientation. And there's so much variability in how someone says, you know, I, I'm now a heterosexual, um, but it's how they come to that conclusion. And it could be they're now heterosexual because they're just not doing anything homosexual anymore. So they may see a change in their behavior, but not necessarily a change in their orientation. But they also may be just less sexual overall, so that's how they may be making sense of um, any positive changes or changes in their sexuality. But because the research doesn't really um, – and I also because I think um, the literature on reparative therapy doesn't really differentiate between sexual behavior, sexual attraction, sexual identity, sexual motivation. It just really um, – Kind of, it's very confusing and gets it can get very convoluted. So people are saying something and promoting change when we don't really know specifically what is you know what can be changed and what's you know the long term results of trying to change that stuff. I want to run past you uh, one anecdotal piece of evidence, and I'm sure you're familiar with Rich Weiler. In fact, I'm reading an NPR report on which they have Mr. Weiler on, a Mr. Toscano, who uh, says he was harmed greatly by reparative therapy, and then you're brought on as the the expert at the end. Uh, Rich Weiler says he swears up and down he went through reparative therapy. He is no longer attracted to uh, to men. He's He was homosexual. He is now heterosexual, he says, and it, he might stand in for others who uh, who say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's those self-reports are... Um they're kind of exciting that people can make such changes. But then when we listen to, like, how did you make this, this change? So that's another part of this. It's not just the, um, the studies that support this, but the assumptions underlying the, the methods, they don't really make sense when it, from a scientific viewpoint. So reparative therapy um, and Rich Riley, uh, the basis of their work is about um, helping individuals develop non-sexual, same-sex relationships, trying to repair the emotional traumas that were developed in childhood. And from that, uh, those assumptions and efforts, one should be more heterosexual. Um, it, it gets confusing because those interventions that, that are in kind of like the um, several of the interventions that are beneficial of this type of therapy actually can be found in other types of therapy. So that, I think that's um, what can get confusing here is people are saying that they're liking this type of therapy and they're getting good results. But they could be getting those results in other forms of therapy that don't really um, prejudice um, lesbian, gay, bisexual lives or um, um, kind of reinforce this idea of hope. Um, but I, I, there are, you know, there are things that one can change about their sexuality. Um, but again, the, the assumptions underlying the intervention, again, don't make sense. Because if one, one intervention is to reinforce traditional gender roles. We know from research that reinforcing gen- traditional gender roles can cause harm for people. Uh, I think people who grew up um, feeling like they were a sissy, you know, trying to help them to feel more like they're more masculine can be helpful, but also can be very harmful for those people who it, that just doesn't fit. So again, th- that's another problem of this type of therapy is that the, um, um, the promises that for, for like the, the promise, the, the blanket statements of promise and hope don't, it's a, it seems like it's a one-size-fits-all, but as um, of individuals who go to this type of treatment, they can't make themselves fit into those expectations, and then that sort of um, false those hopes turn false and despairing. But for Rich, it sounds like he can he's able to make fit his sexuality into certain expectations and live a congruent or a satisfying life that works for him. But again, the methods that he's used describing that make that happen don't really make sense from a scientific viewpoint. I want to get into uh, the statement that you've made, which is shared by many others, which is the at its foundation, reparative therapy is, is flawed. But I just want to um, just follow up uh, with Mr. Weil and others who report that uh, they've found satisfaction from uh, reparative therapy. Um, for Rich Weiler and people like him, uh, people who very definitely motivated, wanted to make the change, felt that it was possible, 
and it uh, seems to have worked for them in their lives. This kind of gets into the question, doesn't it? There's disagreement over whether this is even possible, and I wonder where that uh, fits in. Well, I, I think it's possible for some people. Uh, that's um, I, my work has tried to has tried to um, understand the discrepancies within these reports, why some people are liking it and some people are harmed by it, and why some people just say, mm, that didn't work and I, I need to find something else. Some people, I do think they have the capacity for heterosexual um, arousal, and that could be erotic, could be romantic, it could be affectional, or aesthetic attraction. Some people actually not just have no interest in that, they actually could be aversive to it. I think the, the blanket statements of reparative therapy of that one can change if they just try hard enough. Um, don't really take into account the um, diversity of, of um, experiences, the sexual diversity and um, the variety of people. Uh, what's possible for some people may not be possible for other people. Um, some people have the capacity to um, to be with people of their non-preferred sex, and they can maybe, they might be able to do it for a short term and make it work. Some people can do it for the long term and make it fulfilling. Um, but it, it, I think it's it's me let's, it's me asking. Um, heterosexually oriented individuals, asking them, could you have sex with someone of the same sex? Some people could do it for the long term um, and make it work. Some people would be so repulsed by the idea that they, no matter how hard they tried, they, they just could, they would be more traumatized by it. And some people would be, you know, they could do it and be, um, they can make it work, but it wouldn't be erotically fulfilling. Um, that kind of assessment needs to be done with each individual who's trying to change to see what is realistically possible. So are you saying that, um, you know, for some people like Rich Weiler, uh, they have the capacity, but at, at, at heart he, he hasn't really changed his sexual orientation? Uh, that's what we find with, with bisexual individuals or people who are, are, are more fluid, that they, it's not that they changed their orientation, that they just, that, that what they had the capacity to begin with, and they were able to act more upon that capacity. Um, and it may be, it may not be as exciting as maybe their homosexual attractions, but they had enough heterosexual um, erotic um, um, intensity and, and satisfaction that they could make it work. But that doesn't fit for all of human diversity. There are some individuals, again, who can't do it um, and actually are repulsed by the idea of it. And, but these individuals still would try to be um, heterosexual out of a social um, pressure or social attraction as well, or because, just, you know, they, because they love their spouse. But I, I don't. I, I know the reparative therapy tries to bank on this idea of self determination that you know we should give people what they want. But I don't think they really do um, a good job of assessing with the individual what really is possible, regardless of what your um, religious or your um, culture wants you to do. What is realistically possible for you as a as a as a person, as an individual? And I believe you argue against this idea of self determination. You have an analogy that uh, you used in this NPR piece. If a girl came to a therapist with an eating disorder, the last thing you'd want to do is to help her become thinner. Right. That um, we're we're not just like helping professionals that you come to us and we do what you want. Um, um, we actually, our job is to assess the individual's distress in the knowledge of science that we have, our background. We do have enough knowledge about these um, the, the person's situation that we can offer interventions based upon that knowledge. So um, I would I would work with an individual who's suffering with an eating disorder or who wants to be thin. I would really understand why she wants to be thin and where her vulnerability is regarding that. So she probably has a lot of shame about you know or fear about being fat. Um, so rather than um, I would I would help her to feel more comfortable around the idea around who she is and kind of get off the per- the motivation of being thin versus fat. There's another, the other uh, gentleman uh, quoted in this NPR piece, of which you were, you were quoted as well, uh, along with Rich Weiler, is Peterson Toscano. He uh, went years in reparative therapy, and he, he says he finally came to the viewpoint that uh, what they're trying to do in this therapy is, as he puts it, uh, coaching gay men and women to annihilate part of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what they, there's an assumption of that if you ignore this part of you, that it will go away. And that, you know, that kind of fits with... Um, with what we know about behavioral therapy, if you ignore something, it kind of extinguishes, and then you know the, um, you no longer have the desire. That's what like phobias are all about. The more you, um, the idea that if you, um, you know, shift your attention away from something, then you won't be so afraid of it. 
Um, you can, you're, you're more, you're more, um, you know, you're more focused on something else. But we don't know if that really works with the brain or with sexuality. That the more you ignore it, that it will disappear. That's the problem. Is that people the um, the, the promise that, that you're going to change doesn't happen for many of people, and so people start feeling shameful about the failure of the treatment rather than saying what Peter's done is saying, I didn't fail, the treatment failed me, mm-hmm. or the, the agenda, the solution is the problem, mm-hmm. the solution of changing. That's why I think what I like about the APA task force, our final conclusions and recommendations were that one should find ways to validate and support all aspects of the individual and try to integrate them into some sort of sense of wholeness rather than trying to ignore or suppress or shame or um, cut off a part of oneself. And that includes one's you know, spirituality and religion as well. I wonder if have you respond to a, uh, an argument that Mr. Weiler makes, uh, this Rich Weiler who we've been talking about, who, who he says he was homosexual, he's now heterosexual through reparative therapy. Um, he says the APA... Is uh, the group is saying that he doesn't exist? It's impossible for someone to be attracted to the same sex to change their orientation, and at the same time, a man who wants to become a woman, transsexual, um, according to the APA policy, they can ethically get uh, that treatment. So he's showing his um, unawareness of these issues because um, sexual identity and gender identity are two different things. Um, sexual identity and gender role, gender expression, is something that for him to use that analogy. It just shows his lack of understanding about, um, at least on transgender issues, because um, someone who's experiencing gender dysphoria about their body is someone is very different than who's feeling a, um, um, a, 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 a incompatibility between their sexuality and their religious values. Um, so it's actually quite offensive um, um, what he's how he's comparing the two apples to. I'm not even sure it's the same fruit category, but they're two different things. I wonder what your um, what your thoughts are on this uh, recent lawsuit. A uh, University of Utah student is part of this uh, group. There are four um, gay men who uh, went through a part of therapy. They're suing the state of New Jersey under the uh, Consumer Fraud Act, saying it didn't work. I guess they're trying to get the money back. Well, they are standing up for um, um, acts that others have spoke out against. This idea of being promised something um, and then not being able to achieve it and um, basing treatment on unsubstantiated um, or um, um, even invasive um, um, problematic um, interventions and uh, um, this, this sense of not, not providing uh, um, ability to explore their options. They're saying other, other things that others have said that are harmful um, in this process. I'm, I'm glad that they're actually speaking up for themselves. It's really difficult for victims to speak out against perpetrators because perpetrators tend to have a lot of power. And uh, I'm quite sure these four individuals are getting a lot of people um, um, countering them for standing up against, you know, what, they, what they're feeling. And again, I, I want to also emphasize, you know, what Rich, Rich's position, he wants to stand up for the right to live a heterosexual life, which that's what the APA also is trying to support that people are standing up for um, and to be able to express, you know, what, what, what's true for them. Finally, I want to uh, get your reaction to the recent law that was passed in California, which uh, in which mental health practitioners are prohibited from performing sexual orientation change efforts for, uh, I believe it's anyone under 18. This, I could think, would only apply to, uh, to, I assume, licensed practitioners. There are other, you know, religious groups and the therapists who would not be affected. What's your mm-hmm. reaction? Well, uh, um, the law has done something that the that the um, mental health organizations have not necessarily done yet. The law has drawn the line of you you shouldn't do this therapy, and if you do, we will punish you. Um, APA and all the other mental health organizations that you mentioned earlier, um, they've said don't do this type of therapy, but they have not done anything to punish those who do do that. Um, so the the law took you know I, I think they. You know, they took a very strong stance. Um, I do support, again, the, I do think these, these interventions are unnecessary and potentially harmful because there are other methods that would help individuals resolve their conflicts. Um, but so some, some either, I, I appreciate how the government is, is doing this sort of public um, policy intervention, um, but I do think other, other organizations do need to step forward as saying, this um, is, you know, don't do this type of therapy. 
Uh, and if you do, we will take your licenses away. Um, but it's a very strong stance, and I think it does need to be made because so many people have um, – the the public has um, – because it's getting so many different sides of these issues. They don't really know what's right and what's wrong and what's helpful. With, they don't see the big picture. So I, I appreciate how the government has kind of stepped in to protect those who aren't able to see the, 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 the bigger picture of you know, what works and what doesn't work. Would you advocate for a law which would uh, ban such procedure with the licensed uh, therapist for people over 18? Uh, I would, and I would still encourage all therapists to learn ways of um, developing their multicultural competence. So it, it's, it's, it's important to say, don't do this, and let's figure out what, what really is going to be helpful for this population. So again, it's not. I think it's so easy to go on, on um, to polarize these discussions. People should be gay or they should be straight. No, it's really more about you know how can how can we um, acknowledge all aspects of the individual and move them forward with that. Um, so I would support uh, these bans and these limit settings, but I also do want us to keep moving forward. To how can we um, um, help the individual to live to find it, to make informed decisions about you know what's the best life for them. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Lee Beckstead is a licensed psychologist working uh, full-time in private practice affiliated with Aspen Grove Counseling in Salt Lake City. Uh, and uh, ending in 2009, he uh, was on a uh, two-year position with the American Psychological Association's task force to evaluate research on treatments focused on changing sexual orientation and to provide therapeutic recommendations for those conflicted with their sexual orientation. Lee Beckstead, uh, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Lee Beckstead wasn't able to join us uh, today. We uh, had that conversation yesterday. We're talking about reparative therapy. And uh, proponents uh, say that uh, this is uh, a helpful uh, therapy to uh, help people transition away from unwanted homosexuality. Opponents, as you just heard, say the therapy is not only harmful but flawed in its premise. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation and get a very different view from uh, David Matheson, a licensed professional uh, counselor. Uh, who is a member of the Board of Directors of People Can Change, co-creator of Journey Into Manhood and Journey Beyond, and uh, co-founder of Center for Gender Wholeness. We'll continue this discussion with David Matheson following a brief break. American journalism has been through a few rocky years, but there is some brilliant reporting out there. I'm Jim Fleming. Next time, under the best of our knowledge, Catherine Boo reports from the slums of Mumbai. The host of Radiolab tells science stories. And Tom Wolfe takes on Miami. It's to the best of our knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams. Uh, reparative therapy is in the news lately. California recently prohibited licensed therapists in that state from using this therapy on anyone under the age of 18. A University of Utah student and three other gay men are suing a New Jersey uh, therapy center under New Jersey's uh, Consumer Fraud Act. And uh, opponents say the therapy is not only harmful but flawed in its premise. We turn next to a proponent of reparative therapy. Uh, the, uh, the proponents say it can help people transition away from unwanted uh, homosexuality. Uh, David Matheson is a licensed professional uh, counselor in private practice in Salt Lake City, member of the Board of Directors of People Can Change, co-creator of Journey Into Manhood and Journey Beyond, and co-founder of Center for Gender Wholeness. David Matheson, welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Uh, appreciate you having you uh, with us. Uh, so you were uh, on the line listening to uh, Lee Beckstead. I'm sure you have uh, many points you'd like to refute there. I wonder if you could start, however, um, we'll give you plenty of chance to do that, uh, with uh, talking about what, what are the goals of, and I understand you uh, prefer the term reparative over conversion therapy. Actually, I don't, I don't prefer either term. Um, and probably the, the first thing that I would like to, to say is that um, when it comes to working with individuals with unwanted same-sex attraction, there are many, many different approaches. Uh, and so the term reparative therapy has become somewhat like the term Kleenex for, you know, facial tissue. Uh, but in reality, there's a vast, diff uh, there's a, a variety of um, different ways of approaching it. Personally, I dislike the term reparative therapy because I think it's very confusing and I think it sounds very demeaning. Uh, I also don't particularly care for the term conversion therapy for the same reasons. Uh, and the term that I tend to use is uh, gender wholeness, which is the name of my clinic. 
Uh, so d- gender wholeness is the term you, you prefer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what are, the, what are the goals? Well, the goals of gender wholeness are to uh, work with individuals with unwanted same-sex attraction uh, in a, a process of um, uh, helping them to come to terms with and resolve the distress that they have around their, their sexual orientation. Um, so the, the, I wouldn't say that the primary goal is to change sexual orientation. I would say that the primary goal of what I do uh, is to help people resolve the distress that they have around those issues. And, you know, by the way, um, there wasn't a whole lot in what Lee Beckstead said that I would want to refute other than that it, uh, his sense that it should be uh, made illegal, which I think is, is not a good choice. But most of what he said, I was just sitting here listening and nodding my head because I, I very much agree with much the, the vast majority of what he said. Hmm. Well, that's it's probably good for agreement. They're bad for the radio program here. Uh, <laughs> well, there's not a lot of controversy <laughs> here. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, so, uh, but uh, in, in terms of the people like, and, and Rich Weiler was prominent in our discussion with Lee Beckstead, and you're associated with Rich Weiler, I understand. Sure, yeah. Uh, so a person like Rich Weiler, who uh, had unwanted uh, homosexual tendencies, um, or it, and he, I think he says, I was homosexual, I'm now heterosexual. And uh, is is that your experience working with with people that uh, that, that sort of change is possible? It seems like a big change. It is possible. I wouldn't say that it is what everyone experiences. It is possible. And actually, um, I would say the same thing for myself. Uh, you know, part of part of my role here is that I also grew up um, seeing myself as homosexual, uh, though it took me a long time to admit that that's what I was feeling. And then now I consider myself. You know, very heterosexual, hmm. which doesn't mean that uh, I don't still on occasion experience some level of attraction to men, uh, which is typically not sexual in the feeling, uh, but there is still a, a very much the ability to be aware of another man as being, you know, uh, you know, beautiful or handsome or very attractive, which I don't think puts me too much in contrast with a lot of my heterosexual, you know, peers, men who have been heterosexual their entire lives. So, I, I, I think that it's important to move away from the idea that there is that, that uh, there is such thing as a perfect cure. Um, I don't I don't experience it that way. The clients that I work with don't experience it that way. Uh, but yes, it is very possible to shift greatly in the um, both in the feelings and in the way that you express your sexuality. And if I can characterize Lee Beckstead uh, accurately, I hope <laughs> I hope I do. Uh, he also allowed that yes, it, it, it is possible, but within a kind of a narrower range than it, than I hear some proponents of of reparative therapy or gender wholeness uh, claiming. Uh, well, I think that each person. Well, I should remove the. I think I, I believe it's clear that each person um, will experience their uh, their shift or their change or their you know the outcome of their therapy in a different way. Every person is unique. Uh, some, I mean, there's a man that I worked with for a number of years who recently, you know, told me, you know what, my sexual feelings haven't shifted at all. Uh, there's an awful lot that has shifted for him, uh, but the sexual feelings themselves haven't shifted. Ironically, he's in the process of dating a girl and, and uh, moving toward marriage with her, which is interesting. Uh, for myself, uh, there has been a, a lot of shift in my feelings over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the shift has been in a reduction of the, the sexualization of my feelings toward other men. Uh, but probably the greater shift in me has been the development or the intensification of heterosexual feelings, my attraction to my wife and to uh, other women as well. Mm. So, so sexuality definitely is fluid. Uh, we know that. Um, and, uh, you know, people experience shifts in different ways and to different degrees. And also it's important, I think, to realize that uh, different methods work uh, for different people. I mean, we have to, and this is a point that I really liked that uh, Lee Beckstead made, we really have got to address this on an individual basis, take off all the blanket statements, take off any blanket promise, uh, and look at each individual as an individual case and work within the framework that that individual is bringing. I wonder if you would address uh, for me the, the, this idea that uh, reparative therapy or gender wholeness, the, the whole attempt to reduce uh, same-sex attractions, is flawed in its premise. I think that's what 
uh, some of these uh, professional organizations are getting at, and there's a growing list of professional organizations, Britain and America and, and, and other areas, who are uh, coming out against this. They're saying that it's not needed. This isn't a disorder, um, and, and we shouldn't be encouraging people in this area. Well, I would agree with the idea that it's not a disorder. I dislike the concept of it being a disorder. Um, but I think that that's missing the point, and I think that organizations that would make such a statement are really, um, really, um, how do you say this, diverting from the concept of uh, appreciation of diversity, which is kind of odd because that's what so many of them stand on as a, a basic premise, that we need to recognize diversity and affirm the diversity of the population and of individuals within the population. The reality is, and this, this reality I believe is unchanging, the reality is that there are individuals who under no circumstances uh, will accept homosexuality as a way of sexual expression. Uh, for whatever the reason is, you know, a lot of people, it comes out of religious convictions, uh, but I've also worked with people that didn't have a lot of religious convictions and people who are, you know, completely downright atheists who simply say to me, you know, this is just not me. Uh, I know I have the feelings, I know I have the attractions, but it's just not who I am. It just doesn't feel like me. Um, and so something needs to exist to help those people come to terms with the conflict and to do whatever's possible to come to a, um, a, a way of seeing themselves, a way of feeling about their sexuality, and a way of expressing their sexuality that's in harmony with their sense of self and with their value system. Uh, and so yeah, I, I'm, I'm distressed that there are organizations that would try to remove that right from individuals. This idea of self-determination of, of patients, mm -hmm. um, and you heard... Um, uh, my previous guest, uh, uh, Liebeck, said, talk about this. His analogy is uh, a, a person comes to a therapist with an eating disorder. It would, it would clearly be malpractice for that therapist to encourage that person to become thinner. Uh, I wonder, this, this idea of self-determination, there, there are clearly, uh, you, you, you see patients who definitely come to you and want to change uh, <laughs> the same gender attraction. Well, I, I think the example is somewhat amusing um, in a tragic sort of way. But I don't think it's a very good metaphor. Um, I think a better metaphor, we would be, we'd be talking about um, men coming to me and saying, I hate myself because I have homosexual feelings. And then if someone were to say to them, oh, yes, well, let's try to help you hate yourself more, that would be uh, very wrong. So what I do with individuals, uh, a key part of what I have to do with them is to, and, and often this is the first matter of business, is to diminish the shame that they have around the feelings. Diminish the sense that they are flawed, they're broken, they're bad, they're wrong because they have these feelings. Uh, diminish the thought that, they, that God hates them, that they have no place within their church uh, because of these feelings. Uh, so that would be a, a better metaphor. And, you know, in, in, that, in that case, I would agree with him that, uh, you know, any person going to a therapist for any issue if uh, hatred, if shame, if um, uh, obsessiveness, um, meaning negative um, beliefs and thoughts about themselves caused by whatever's going on are present, then the therapist has an obligation to first help them come to terms with that and accept where they are, who they are, and what they're dealing with. I wonder if you'd respond to the uh, other person on, on that NPR report that we made reference to with Lee Beckstead. Uh, one, of course, was Rich Weiler. Mm -hmm. uh, the other was Peterson Toscano. He said he yeah. spent many years in reparative therapy. Uh, he came, finally came to the uh, realization for himself that it, it wasn't needed. In fact, it had harmed him. And he used the phrase that the, the therapists here are trying to get uh, him and others like him to annihilate part of themselves. That's really disturbing. Um, and I suspect that he is, um, unfortunately, he may be accurate. In other words, I know that there are therapists out there who I would consider my colleagues, although not necessarily, although not on the same page with me, um, who approach homosexuality or quote-unquote reparative therapy from that perspective. Uh, it, it saddens me. It saddens me greatly. It breaks my heart that anyone would um, that anyone would go away from years of therapy having had that experience. Um, it, it reminds me of a of a, uh, a man that I worked with when I was on the East Coast. Uh, there was a young man who was a rabbi. Um, who was coming to me for therapy, and we worked for you know extended period of time, and it became apparent to me over time that 
his behavior outside of session was not congruent with what he was saying he wanted in session. And I finally realized that this man really was not, wasn't, um, wasn't really pursuing the goals that in therapy he said he wanted. And so then I actually was the one who said to him, look, I, I don't get the sense that what we're doing here is what you really want. And I wonder if it's time for you to perhaps accept that what you really want is to live a gay lifestyle and is to go a different direction. It was a very painful process for him, um, and yet he realized, you know, through, through the course of this, um, this part of our, our work together, that indeed he really did want it, it did have a different goal. You know, and so in that case, as a quote-unquote reparative therapist, no, let me say it this way, in that case, as a therapist, as a therapist first, as a person who first puts, uh, puts ahead of any agenda the well-being of the individual, um, it was my, became my duty to help the man affirm that he wanted to um, pursue a gay life. Um, I've lost contact with him since then. Uh, we had a few more sessions after that, and then that was it. Uh, but I felt very good about having helped that individual make that self-determination, though it was in contrast with the original goals for which he sought my help. Do you think that is, obviously you think that's uh, that should be uh, a goal, part of the goal for the patient, uh, if, if the therapist realizes that, to, to help them embrace their homosexuality, but do you think that that would be even a possibility in, in some uh, therapy practices, especially those uh, religiously affiliated. Well, I think I think a lot of therapists that do the kind of work that I do, or that I should say, I should say that work with the same population that I work with, have tended, and, and this is a criticism, an open criticism of my of my peers, have tended to be uh, dogmatic, have tended to be short-sighted, and um, and I don't think that's in the best interest of the of the client. And at the same time, I have to level that same criticism toward those that um, um, conduct what might be called gay affirmative counseling or therapy. Uh, they um, have tended to be equally or even more dogmatic um, in saying, look, if you have homosexual feelings, you're gay, and the only way for you to ever come to terms with it is to affirm your uh, gayness and to come out, etc. I think that is yeah, equally as wrong, and honestly, I've had clients that have come to me saying, look, I, I went to a therapist. He told me the only thing I could do was to come out and be gay, and I became suicidal. I became extremely depressed and very distressed. And then when I heard about what you do, and now after talking to you, the depression, the suicidality has lifted because I realize I have another option. So dogmatism um, and agendas and uh, politics have no place in this work. Uh, and, you know, the thing actually, the biggest thing I'm taking away from this conversation is an intention to call Lee Beckstead and open a dialogue. I'm thrilled, again, yeah. by what he was saying. All right. Well, we've, we've done <laughs> so some good here. This show <laughs> has, has produced that. <laughs> yeah, but we've done some good. That's good. Um, I wonder if you could talk to um, the, the harm that opponents say, beyond uh, to the participants themselves, uh -huh. but in broader terms of reinforcing stereotypes, reinforcing... Um, the, the, this idea that uh, that being gay is is a wrong thing in society, they they attack reparative therapy on those terms. Well, I I can't say a whole lot about that other than that I think it's um, it's it shouldn't be. Um, stereotypes are always going to exist. I personally don't want to have anything to do with reinforcing such stereotypes. Uh, and I would you know call on any of my peers, any of my colleagues who are uh, reinforcing or intensifying such stereotypes, to watch carefully what they say. Um, at the same time, I would call upon um, those on the, you know, on the quote-unquote other side of this issue to be cautious about their own dogmatism and to be cautious about their own stereotyping, particularly the stereotyping of uh, the kind of therapy that I do, because as I, I think I've been illustrating, there's a big difference, there's a big range. I mean, there are really zealous uh, right-wing uh, religious, I would say even fanatical people who, you know, do certain methods that that really are harmful and deplorable. And then I try to be as far on the other end of that spectrum as I possibly can while still affirming that an individual's sexuality can be fluid and that they, you know, that they can do a lot to shift their uh, sense of self and even shift their sexual feelings. I want to, just a couple of minutes left, to uh, end with effectiveness. There's a, uh, a lawsuit 
uh, in New Jersey involving a University of right. Utah student. Uh, they're they're suing, interestingly, under the Consumer Fraud Act. Uh-huh. I guess it, going to, it didn't work and also caused harm. But, but uh, just the overall effectiveness, um, Liebex and other opponents are saying that there's no real you know, science here and that uh, some of the self-reporting that you hear that goes to the effectiveness uh, has some problems. I wonder what you say about effectiveness of, of this therapy. Well, there are several different questions there. One, in terms of self-reporting, uh, what better gauge, what other gauge do we have to assess the effectiveness of any therapy than self-report? In other words, even in a quantitative study, it's the client who's self-reporting. He's saying either my anxiety diminished or my anxiety increased, my homosexual feelings diminished or increased. It's all self-reporting. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what to say about the problems with self-reporting. Um, but to go back to the research, um, it, you know, this is another criticism of my own, of my own group. Uh, we haven't done a lot of research. There is some that has been done. Uh, it's typically ignored. Uh, but there is there's some that has been done, but we you know we've been underfunded. We've been you know <laughs> recently, particularly, we've been sort of running for our lives. Um, but we haven't done nearly enough research. I think that when we do research, it will bear out the reality, uh, which we are reporting anecdotally now, that there are people who do make tremendous changes. And when I say changes, I mean primarily that they come to uh, a, a feeling of peace and resolution about their sexuality. Uh, and also in many cases that their sexuality does shift, that they become able to live with uh, values con- in a values-congruent way, uh, that they be- become more, um, they-, they gain a greater sense of wholeness, meaning that they have a, uh, a sense of congruity with themselves, that they have a loving acceptance of all that they are, and that they are capable and they are released from uh, you know, certain uh, situations in their life history to pursue their, uh, their highest potential. So I think that when we are able to do research, it will bear that out, uh, because anecdotally that's what we see. And we don't see it with every patient, but we do see it with many. David Matheson is in private practice in Salt Lake City. He's a licensed professional counselor. He's a member of the Board of Directors of People Can Change, co-creator of Journey Into Manhood and Journey Beyond, and co-founder of Center for Gender Wholeness. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Pleased to be here. And following a brief break, we're going to shift gears. We're going to uh, talk with uh, a couple of gentlemen who are gay and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We'll get their reaction uh, to a recent launch of a website from the Mormon Church, mormonsandgays.org, and outreach uh, activities to uh, gay Mormons. Uh, if they would like, we'll get them to weigh in on reparative therapy as, as well. Uh, Josh Weed and uh, Mitch Main will join us following the break. This Week in This American Life... A Pentecostal bishop gets a revelation that everybody's going to heaven, whether they believe or not. Nobody's going to hell. We've been sold a bill of goods. The God we've been preaching is a monster. He's worse than Saddam. He's worse than Osama bin Laden. He's worse than Hitler. Because Hitler just burnt six million Jews, you know, but God's going to burn at least six billion people. What it's like to be a modern-day heretic this week. Friday morning at 3 and Sunday afternoon at 2, think at, on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for being with us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We make a transition now and uh, talk to two gentlemen who are gay and are Mormon. And especially want to get reaction from uh, new outreach efforts from uh, the LDS Church. Mormonsandgays.org was recently launched and uh, we bring in uh, Josh Weed. Uh, Josh Weed, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And Mitch Main, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks, Tom. Uh, Josh Weed, um, I understand you, you're, uh, you're in counseling, you're a therapy, therapist. Yes. Uh-huh. So I wonder uh, if you have anything uh, you'd like to add on this discussion that we've had in the previous uh, part of the hour on reparative therapy. Uh, very interesting discussion. It, one of the things that it was most intriguing was um, the fact that there seemed to be some level of consensus between the guests, and um, I thought that was I thought that was interesting and surprising. Uh, I guess in a probably in a good way. I uh, personally, my take is that um, I tend to lean towards um, orientation is more static, and so 
I do think that um, reparative therapy or change therapy, uh, I, 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 I kind of more align with those who believe that it's flawed in its premise and that that's problematic because it gives people um, a perception that will give, it gives them a goal that will probably not be achieved. And then when that goal is not achieved, the goal of orientation change, there is a lot of um, negative feelings that are a byproduct of the lack of change. So, mm. Mitch Main, just out of curiosity, maybe you'd like to weigh in on this. Um, well, I actually agree with Josh on this one mm -hmm. um, completely. I think that what happens for us as gay Mormons, I mean, my own experience growing up, I mean, it's pretty public knowledge that when I told my mom that I was gay at age 16, her first words to me were, you know, it would have been born better, it would have been better for me if you'd been born dead than gay. And then immediately I was shuffled off to reparative therapy. And as a gay Mormon youth, I'm surrounded by these messages of, you know, this is not an immutable part of yourself. It is something that you can change. Um, and, you know, the messages originally are, come on, you can do it, you can do it. Um, and then over time, when, you know, we as gay Mormons try to change our orientation and fail, those messages become, um, well, you just didn't pray hard enough, or you didn't try hard enough, or you're not really worthy enough. Um, and that's really where we see, you know, these rejecting messages and signals coming from our parents and our ecclesiastical leaders and our peers that really lead gay Mormons into a deeper sense of despair, a deeper sense of self-hatred. And that's actually where we see them ending up trying to take their own lives. Mm. So I think reparative therapy in and of itself is, you know, I was listening to what Matheson said, and, it, you know, I appreciated the, the previous client who had used the term annihilate part of myself. Because really what I hear Matheson saying is just kind of a kinder, gentler annihilation. Um, I still think that this is damaging. And now we have, you know, proof from the Family Acceptance Project here in uh, California that, you know, shows us what the damage that these messages cause and how deadly they really are. Hmm. I should have mentioned, Mitch Man, you're in the Bay Area? Correct, San yeah. Francisco. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about the, the this uh, the intersection of, of your uh, sexuality, both of you, and, and uh, being in a conservative religion. Uh, the the LDS Church. Uh, start with Mitch Main on this one. Uh, you are an active Mormon. I believe you're um, have a you know, prominent calling in your ward, uh, and you're gay. How do you? And you talked about some of the issues of how you reconcile that. Um, well, what it boils down to for me, Tom, honestly, is um, believing first and foremost that you know I am a child of my Father in Heaven and. Uh, you know, a younger brother to my savior. And I was created the way I was created for a purpose. And I am loved exactly for who I am by my father in heaven. Um, I don't think, you know, just because, you know, my faith or some people inside my faith may not understand how I fit inside my heavenly father's plan doesn't mean my heavenly father hasn't known all along. So I don't really feel compelled to reconcile my sexual orientation with any human. Um, my sexual orientation was given to me as a gift by my Father in Heaven. So, you know, if you can't accept it, then that's not really my problem. Um, but, I, you know, again, it's viewing myself as whole just the way I was made. I think we as gay Mormons have a spot in the grand plan. That spot may not be fully known yet, but that spot is definitely there. I, I could see, you know, maybe talk to others in the gay community, not in a, a church like the LDS Church, who would uh, scratch their heads about this? That, that uh, to to you know to be an active LDS uh, person, you you can't exercise your sexuality. Well, let's be clear here. Um, what we're doing here in the San Francisco Bay Area and in several wards and congregations throughout the country is opening the doors to all LGBT individuals, um, regardless of where they are in their personal lives. So your statement is actually inaccurate. Um, we have a large um, population within the Bay Area who are um, LGBT, uh, some of whom um, have partners of many years in a monogamous committed relationship. Others are dating somebody new every night. Others still are living in the confines of the policy as we understand it today. Um, so, yeah, you actually can. Um, the onus, I think, is on our faith to really put our money where our mouth is and roll up our sleeves and do something differently here and say we are – you know, our job is to bring people closer to our Savior, and our Savior meets people where they are. He doesn't expect you to perfect yourself and then come to Him. So, you know, by opening the doors and allowing people to take part in their ward families, we're really doing the Christ-like thing. I mean, Christ's ministry 
was centered largely on, you know, what were considered the outcasts of his days. You know, I don't ever recall him, you know, castigating the prostitute or berating the money changer. You know, but I have him, you know, I remember him distinctly having a few choice words for people who did. Mm. Uh, Josh Weed, uh, you're in an interesting position. Obviously, you, um, and I neglected to say, you're, you're a gay man, but you're, you're married, uh, have children, active uh, LDS uh, person. I imagine you think about some of these things. Where, where do you fit within the LDS church? Um, I, I enjoyed what Mitch just had to say. Um, I do believe that there is kind of some broadness in, in what we see people doing with regards to their, um, you know, with their, with regards to their homosexual orientation and how they are participating in the church. I, uh, I am obviously, I'm married to a woman, and I am, you know, I participate fully in the church and uh, have the ability to, um, you know, I, I attend the temple and and whatnot. Uh, so I, I feel like I. I'm kind of lucky in 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 the fact that my life has led a certain path that has allowed me to to um, be in full participation. But as Mitch was saying, there is a lot of um, outreach that needs to be done to those who don't necessarily find themselves in that same situation, but still want to worship and be a part of things. And and I agree completely that Christ's ministry was one that was reaching out to those who found themselves kind of more on the fringes. Mm. We just have about a minute left, maybe 30 seconds each, unfortunately. Uh, I apologize for that. Uh, starting with um, Josh Weed, uh, I wonder what you think about the, the latest uh, outreach effort from the LDS Church, uh, mormonsandgays.org. Uh, I'm very excited by it. I, I love the URL in and of itself, the fact that it's Mormons and Gays. I, I was very excited by that fact, and I thought that the, I think the website is excellent. It contains a lot of stories that are genuine and, and real from church leaders, and I was very excited by its existence. Mitch Main, your reaction? Um, I, again, echo Josh. I was thrilled to see this. Um, you know, I, I think a bridge definitely needs to be built between the LGBT community, especially LGBT Mormons, and the, the church as an institution. And I, was, I think this is a very optimistic sign. I love the use of the term gay. It, it sort of tosses out this whole misguided notion that, you know, all of this is based on feelings and there's no such thing as a sexual identity. And, you know, this, is, this isn't the bridge. This isn't the complete bridge, but it is a brick, and it's a very, very significant one. And I applaud my faith for, for doing the right thing here. Um, still needs a little work, and we have a long way to go, but overall I'm very happy with it. Well, we reached the end of our time. I'm sure we'll continue this discussion on another occasion. Uh, Mitch Main and Josh Weed, uh, two uh, gay men, uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We've been talking about uh, about the intersection there of religion, their religion, and uh, and their sexual orientation. Uh, Josh Weed, Mitch Main, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, coming up tomorrow, we hope you'll join us for a discussion of... Uh, uh, Part Wild. It's a new book, a memoir of one woman's journey with a creature caught between the worlds of wolves and dogs. Her friend, a hybrid wolf dog, uh, Kirdwan, um Weller, um, is my guest. And uh, we'll uh, be talking about that tomorrow. Kirdwan Terrell, rather, my guest tomorrow. And uh, for producer Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for joining me today. You're listening to KUSL HD 189.3 Richfield, KUSK HD 188.5 Vernal, KUSR HD 189.5 Logan, KUST HD 188.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD 191.5 Logan. The time is now 10 o'clock.